We're continuing on with uh, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, starting at verse 45 and through the next chapter. <clears throat> and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Chapter 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is, that, is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Thank you, Marsha, for reading that passage for us. Good morning, Cross Fellowship. Um, what a delight it is to be here again <clears throat> before you. The king has arrived. As we continue in following this story, uh, following Jesus in Luke 19, 45, as the passage has been opened, we finally come to the end of our journey to Jerusalem. This is the final stop for Jesus as he will soon lose his life to pay the redemptive price for the sins of people. We left off where Jesus was broken and sobbing for the city of Jerusalem and saying that in general the people were unaware of this unique time in redemptive history that they find themselves. 
Jesus, in referencing this time of their visitation, is broken over their spiritual blindness and their inability to recognize who he is. Luke tells us what Jesus did when he got to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and drove out those who sold. <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this famous scene of cleansing the temple. This place of the temple was believed to be the most holy place in all Israel. This temple was to believed to be built on the most holy ground. The temple was believed to be where a person could be the closest to God. The temple was believed to be where one could experience the very presence of God. And the temple is exactly the place where Jesus enters and begins to teach daily. Let's read verses 45 through and 46 again. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called, it shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Luke has recorded for us this visual explanation of what Jesus did at the time of this particular visitation. God has visited his people before in the past by sending prophets, but now he himself is visiting the, in the physical person of Jesus Christ as their promised Messiah. Luke is recording this scene of Jesus exercising or demonstrating his authority over the temple. Picture this scene with me for a moment. Jesus has been out gathering many different peoples who are believing in him. He has been healing. He has been loving, forgiving, restoring, and teaching people. His disciples are becoming a multitude of the marginalized, the lame, the despised, the hated, the outcast, the immoral, the shamed, the foreigner, the sinful, and the tax collectors. He has been promising, get this if you will, picture yourself following him. He has been promising the kingdom to those who would follow and continue to believe in him as their Lord. Now picture this huge entourage, multitude of people he has led into Jerusalem. During this preparation week of Passover, and now he's coming to the temple. People coming to the temple should expect to find the heart of God on display in mercy compassion, love, especially by those in authority. Instead, Jesus knows what dishonesty and evil is taking place behind the scenes in the temple as well as the leadership's rejection of him. During this driving out, Jesus explains what is happening 
by quoting Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. We can begin to understand why Jesus entered the temple and drove out those who sold when we understand the context of the combination of these two passages that Christ uses. We're not going to go back and turn there. You can mark those two passages. That's Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. Jesus pulls from both of these prophets. And this whole scene is amazing as Jesus begins to go forward and come into the temple. And it's as if he reaches back and begins to drag all of the Old Testament and bring it forward as to what's happening on this particular time. There's so much Old Testament references here. But picture this scene. The people come in. Jesus goes into the temple. He drives those out that are selling. And then he quotes these two passages. Capture what's going on. He's got this whole group of people who are believing in him, at least up to this point. Isaiah 56, I'll summarize, and Jeremiah 7. And these two particular passages are speaking of a salvation time coming back then. There is a salvation time coming. That will include outcasts and foreigners who are joining themselves to the Lord. And God himself will be the one to bring them to this holy mountain. Here's what's beautiful. And what these people, God says back then, will have to offer when this time comes, will be accepted on God's altar. Ultimately, this will be Jesus himself. These people had nothing to offer. These people had absolutely nothing, but they come in belief and trust up to this point in what Jesus' words said. And Jesus references back to these two Old Testament passages saying that when he comes, what they have to offer will be accepted. God also told these people back then, that if they don't change their dishonest ways, they will no longer have favor with God. And because of their continual evil practices in God's house, he will cast them out of his sight. This is exactly what's going on. The prophet's words are ringing true right here at this moment. So Jesus, in throwing these people out of the temple, is making a direct connection to God himself before their very eyes. This is the very evil that Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied against, and it is exact same evil that is being committed in front of Jesus, who is God, in this scene here at the temple. Jesus is reminding these people in front of him about the holiness of God and that they haven't changed from their evil ways. This time of their visitation is a visit from God himself. The temple should have been a place where all people could come and experience the heart of God. 
These religious leaders and their leading of the people were fully responsible and they knew Jesus was indicting them as well as those who sold. We know this to be true because of verse 47 and 48. This helps reveal for us in this story the response and reaction of Israel's leadership and the people. Luke tells us at this point the leadership's response and the people's response. Let's read verses 47 and 48. So here's, what, here's what, how they respond to this. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the, principal of the, of the people, principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. So they're not happy. <clears throat> but they did not find anything they could do, at least at this time, for all the people were hanging on his words. I do believe that God was restraining these leaders from going as far as they could, at least at this time, because they were fearful of the people. The people were still trying to see who Jesus was. When the evil was being exposed by Jesus, the religious leaders hated what Jesus did, but the people were captivated by his words. This is the same tr rings true as it is for us today. If the gospel that we share is a true gospel that calls people to change and that a future judgment is coming, we can expect people today to respond the exact same way. Some will hate it and others might desire to continue hearing it. I'm not suggesting that we go into churches and begin to throw people out who are in authority, who are teaching wrong. But one thing we should consider, Cross Fellowship, is if Jesus came into our church today? Would there be anything that we are doing or not doing? Even as leaders, would there be practices that he would be displeased with and drive out? In all honesty, every church should evaluate all that goes on, on the inside, so that at the heart of everything we do brings glory to God. If you consider why we lead the church in our prayer gatherings, Our prayer gatherings are not just an activity that we try to create. We believe that God's church will die without corporate prayer. This is also why we practice church membership and church discipline. This is why we are so particular about our gospel. We believe that our gospel has come down to us from God and that it is not ours to do with as we please. As Christians, we should be passionate about the same things as Jesus as we demonstrate his authority in our church. In chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, Luke now singles out specifically what one of those days looked like. He places this here as a direct result from Jesus' disruption of the temple. Luke says that he was teaching and preaching the gospel. While he was doing that, his authority was question. Let's read verses 1 through 8 again. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? 
But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered <laughs> that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because Jesus has been exposing how far off the leadership has been. The leadership is now trying to expose Jesus as being a fraud with no authority. They ask him, where is your authority comes from to drive out those who sold in the temple and to teach the way he does? Where does he get this? These leaders are feeling the pressure of losing control when so many people are enthralled and listening to him. It's obvious in how these religious leaders are questioning Jesus' authority, indicating that they don't like it. They are trying to figure out a way to regain control by discrediting Christ. This is just like it is for us today. People hate it when God's authority is so radically different from what, how they're living and what we want. And his word confronts us we question why he has the right to tell us what to do. Jesus responds with a question for them. Jesus' answer is conditioned upon them answering him first. If they give an honest answer to his question, Jesus will answer them. The religious leaders hate Jesus and his teaching, but they listened in this passage to his question. Jesus asked them to acknowledge and confess where the baptism of John came from, heaven or man. If you remember, John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he was put to death for his confronting of people. Jesus brings up the Baptist for them to decide about John's authority, where it came from. The reason Jesus is saying this is because his authority, Jesus's, and his ministry came from the same place as John testified. If they acknowledge that John's ministry came from heaven, they also have to acknowledge that Jesus came from heaven. But if they acknowledge that John's ministry was merely from man, then they would experience the wrath from the people. In other words, the reason that Jesus brings us up is to back these religious leaders into a corner and expose them publicly before the people for who they are. Jesus is pulling the curtain back. As these religious leaders begin to reason within themselves and they try to outguess Jesus, they discuss among themselves both scenarios. When they realized they were trapped by Jesus' question, they decided to abstain from answering. This was a hard blow to the religious leaders publicly, and Jesus refused to answer them further until they are honest about the truth that they do have. By bringing back up the baptism of John, Jesus is calling for an honest answer out of them. When sharing the gospel, there is no need to go on pronouncing people saved if they won't be honest from their heart, who they truly are. Neither these people in front of Jesus nor anyone else will ever be saved unless there is honesty before God. In verses 5 through 7, they are reasoning with God how not to be trapped. 
How many times are unbelievers confronted with the truth of God's word? They repeatedly do anything they can to try to get out of conforming to the authority of God and answering honestly what is, the, what is clearly in front of them. Jesus asked them to decide about the ministry of John. Jesus gave them two possible answers. They did not want to be exposed by either one of his answers. Answering either way reveals that they are wrong. It is amazing that they came up with this third answer, I don't know. They plead ignorance. This is truly quite amazing that the spiritual leaders of national Israel would rather reject plain truth than acknowledge the authority of Jesus and his, his authority over their lives. How many countless churches today are following leaders who will not bring the authority of God's word to bear first on their lives and then call people to submit to his authority? Dear Cross Fellowship, this is exactly why we take, carry out church discipline. This is exactly why we do the hard things that God has called us to do. It's not because it's fun. It's not because we want to, but it's because this is what Jesus has asked us to. I am convinced that all across America, there are many, many churches who are absolutely, completely abandoning that Jesus has any authority over anyone's life. No human being will ever get to plead ignorance before God. They can't do it. It's an impossibility. These Jews could not sidestep Jesus then, and nobody will ever get to sidestep Jesus now. We have the light in front of us, and there are many people who are lost. Truth teaches that people always have enough evidence around them to show them their need. Everyone is responsible and accountable before God for their need to repent and acknowledge that they need another authority over their life. And it cannot be another human's. It must be God's. I am grateful that God raises up people who are willing to carry the gospel overseas to people groups who have never heard the name of Jesus. You know, Cross Fellowship, that we do support and we are engaged in overseas ministries. But don't think for one minute that when we see how broken Jesus was over these people, that God doesn't care about the Jews, even though they are a nation who had more gospel exposure in their history than any other nation on the face of the planet. Lost is lost. If anything, this should reveal how hard and dead hearts are. It grieves the heart of God when Jews are treated poorly by so-called Christians. I have seen this. I have, we, we had a Jewish man when Rita and I moved in on our block living. He no longer, he's no longer living. It was amazing. I had the opportunity. We rode our bikes down through his street every day, and we came up to his home. And um, he, Rita and I don't ride our bikes with helmets, um, and he didn't like that. Um, so he told us about it. He told us about it quite a bit. Um, you know, but I built a friendship and a relationship with him and found out that he was pure Jew. And um, it was such a sweet time I had with him to be able to continue to love him and demonstrate that um, I wanted to have a friendship with him. I wanted to get to know him. And it was amazing. One day as Rita and I were riding our bikes again without our helmets, 
he invited both of us in to the back patio for lemonade. And at that time, I got to ask him, I said, can you, being a Jew, can tell me some wonderful historical things in the history of the Jews help me to understand better the Old Testament? And uh, he began to share with me his life. What was amazing about his life as he began to share and lay his life out was how difficult he had as a time as a boy being brought up in among people that hated him. They were so-called Christians and they hated. They hated him. They were mean to him. They picked on him. My heart broke for the treatment of those who God is passing over here. And in some sense, the veil has not been lifted. There is still a veil over many Jews' hearts that have missed their Messiah, and God, in his kindness, has opened up salvation to a people who had no clue, who had no idea that there was a Messiah, who had no understanding that they needed to be rescued. This passage is so huge for us to get a hold of. If anything, we should be so grateful for a passage like this and have our hearts so loving the Jews and that salvation came from them. God hates it when people are not treated as if they've been created by God. It grieves the heart of God when Jews are treated poorly by so-called Christians, just like it grieves God's heart for these Jews to poorly have treat their foreigners. There are many people who are going to experience the full wrath of God for their demoralizing of people, including the lack of love that people have for the Jewish group. In verse 8, Jesus tells these leaders, there's no reason to give you more information when you are not honest with what you already have. These religious leaders were asked by Jesus to confess his authority over them even when they couldn't fit him into their religious system. Everyone knew that John the Baptist was sent by God and, and John testified of who Jesus was. How many of you are here hearing God's people over and over testify of who Jesus is and you're not finding the help that you're looking for because you're not being truthful with the knowledge that you do have? What Jesus is asking of these religious leaders is to repent and surrender their position of authority and confess him publicly that his authority is necessary and needed over their lives. Jesus is still in the business of calling people to repent, being on the throne of their own lives and stop questioning his authority and start surrendering to him. Jesus gives a parable to this divided crowd in front of him, speaking it to the people, but it's intended for his opponents to hear. 
Jesus lays this story right alongside of Israel's history, including what is currently taking place right in front of them. In this parable, it is important to see how Jesus begins and ends with the owner of the vineyard, which is God. In this parable, Jesus emphasizes that it is God who has ultimate authority over one's life. In, in, in other words, no matter what's going to happen in these next few days, everyone is still accountable to God. Let's read again verses 9 through 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. <clears throat> a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him, beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus begins with a man that planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. And then he was physically not present for a long time. Let me break this down just simply for sake of time. The man represents God. The vineyard represents the people of Israel. The tenants represent the leadership in charge of God's people, whom Jesus is speaking of. The, the servants represent the Old Testament prophets that God continued to send his people, including to including the, the leadership. Finally, the man's son represents Jesus as God's only son, as the current person in front of these people, in front of Jesus. Jesus explains that over the course of the history of Israel, God has sent prophets to the leadership of Israel, expecting them to submit to the authority of the representatives God was sending to them. Jesus points out that throughout Israel's history, they have a track record of disregarding what God has to say to them and that they have abused God's spokesman. This parable is highlighting that God is seen as no longer needed or to have any authority over their leadership. Throughout this parable, one can see the incredible patience of God and his love for people. Jesus makes it very clear that overall in general, they have been a very disobedient people and especially the evil of the leadership. 
Jesus brings us to current events and explains that God has now sent his only son. And there should be full surrender to his lordship as he has perfectly lived the exact image of God himself in person. Verse 14 is completely shocking that this parable indicates that these leaders know what's going on and are fully responsible for the evil that is going to take place. Look again at verse 14. But when, Jesus says, the tenants, that's the leadership, saw him, this is the heir, they said to themselves, ah, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Jesus knows that they are plotting against him and even and tells them what they are thinking. This is amazing. Jesus is already telling them what they're thinking. He accuses the leaders in the parable that they believe that if they can make it or survive through the son's death, then they will no longer be accountable. In verse 15, Jesus in full control predicts that they are going to carry out this plan all the way. Jesus tells them, you're going to do this. Then Jesus appeals to their conscience and reminds them of the authority and the power of the owner that these people still must face. In other words, it's not over. The story is not done. In verse 16, Jesus brings the resolve to the end of his parable and explains that the owner, by sending others, in no way is powerless, but he has been patient. Let me ask you something. I wonder if there's some here that God has been incredibly patient with that God has continued to demonstrate his patience towards you just like he has these people in sending person after person after person after person to help you to see your greatest need. God is demonstrating his patience 2 Peter 3, 9 talks about that God is patient, not wishing that any should perish. In that passage, it's a guaranteed that the result of his patience is so that others can come to know Jesus. This is exactly what is going on here. God has been patient with these Jews and the reason for his patience is one, so that to demonstrate his love, also so that they could see their need for God and himself and also for him to demonstrate how great their need is to turn and trust in him. In verse 16b, we see the reaction of the leadership as God allows them to understand what Jesus is saying in the parable. Look at the last portion of verse 16 again. When they heard this, they said, surely not. This was an emphatic, may it never be. To put it into modern terms, there is no way that that could ever happen. 
regardless of what people might think, continual rejection of Jesus' authority over one's life is guaranteed to face God in judgment. Stating that there's no way that that can happen is not the right response. Unfortunately, this is the kind of unbelief that is found here in Israel, and it is exactly many times the same kind of unbelief that is seen today. How many times have we confronted people in their sin, and they ponder it in their mind, and they go their own way, and they think, no way does that apply to me. It is amazing how hard the heart is. Unfortunately, this is the same kind of belief that we, unbelief that we find today. There are so many Americans that believe that they are right with God. They can live however they want and however they believe, and there is no way that God will destroy them. Obviously, this was not the right response that God will ever accept. He doesn't accept it from them, and he will never accept it from you. This is simply another form of unbelief that keeps people from seeing the kingdom. In verse 17, we can see Jesus' response. Let's see what he says. <clears throat> but he looked directly at them and said, What then is this? That is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This statement that Jesus gives is cited from Psalm 118.22. If you've ever wondered what rejection might look like, Luke gives a good description here by Jesus looking directly at them. This is a disapproval of what they are doing. This look was a look of condemnation for their unbelief. Jesus has now brought all of David's psalm to bear down on him. He is the fulfillment of the salvation that is spoke of in that psalm. The stone here that Jesus is speaking of is himself. What he is telling them is that by the rejection of him, he will become the measure by which God measures every aspect of everyone's life. Jesus is the standard and the salvation by which the authority of God is found. He will be the measure, thus giving Jesus all authority. Jesus is saying that he will become the cornerstone. Anyone who falls on that stone, even though they reject it, they will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is quoting again from Isaiah 8.14 now, reassuring these leaders in front of him that their unbelief will most assuredly end in disaster. Jesus wasn't sent so that he could be tripped over. Jesus wasn't sent to be the crusher at this time. Jesus was sent to be the Savior as well. As for others, the only way to be part of the true vineyard of God is to be planted through Christ Jesus. Let me ask you something. Do you find it difficult and hard to obey Christ? 
Really. If Jesus says this, what is it that is so difficult in our hearts to keep us from saying, yes, Lord? Why is it that so many people would reject Christ? Jesus came to place himself as the sacrifice. He would be the one that would be sacrificed on the altar. He is preparing himself to be, at this time, the Passover lamb. And what Jesus did as he came to this temple and he drove out those who sold and he began to explain that he is going to be the cornerstone that God sets the mark for everything. How is it that sinful people can be made right with this holy God? What Jesus is going to do soon as he continues to confront this leadership and make them even more angry, they'll get their chance at him. What he's going to do and what he did 2,000 years ago is he laid down his life. And instead of Jesus saying, you must fulfill God's law perfectly, Jesus is going to step in the place and say, I will do that for you. These people that came to this mountain believing in Jesus, coming to this temple mound, would ultimately see Jesus be that sacrifice for God. He will come, lay his life down, experiencing and receiving the full wrath of God, making payment for sins that these people and us have committed, a people that didn't even have a clue that there was a Messiah coming. Jesus then said, this will be taken away from all of those who reject me and be given to a people who embrace me. The, the hopes is, is that if you're here and you continue to reject Christ and his sacrifice for you, there is no other hope that you can have to meet God in judgment. You will be absolutely pulverized to pieces. That's what this passage is saying. These Jews that rejected him and are dead have been completely crushed and pulverized from Jesus. Jesus is not meant to be a stumbling stone that we kick out of the way, that we trip over, that we stumbled, but this is to be a stone that we pick up, embrace, and bring into our lives and receive his authority over our lives. <clears throat> we pray that if you are here and you genuinely struggle with Christ's authority over your life, the heart, heartbeat would be that you would submit and surrender. He has came. He has come to be the Savior. He came the first time to be the Savior of people as he laid down his life and opened the vineyard up to a Gentile people. Cross Fellowship Church, we have the most beautiful message for everyone around us 
and our hope would be is that you would take the light of what Christ has given you and communicate and share it with others as their only hope to be reconciled to a holy God. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this passage. God, I can't even hardly believe sometimes that you would pass over your own in order to receive a people who would love you. Others. Those others, God, included anyone here as Gentiles that have been brought into a saving relationship with you. But God, the others also included among the Jews, those would, that would be received, that would receive you. God, we thank you so much that you were removing the leadership that was in place and you were giving it to your 12 disciples. We thank you, God, that your church is comprised today of both Jews and Gentiles that are claiming Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you had others in mind that would submit their lives to you fully and surrender, God, all that they have, all that they are to you. I pray that if there is one here that does not know you, God, that they would recognize that this salvation is open to them. We thank you for your amazing love for us. Thank you for this passage, and we give you the praise, Jesus, as we have sung about already. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.